Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your hosts, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Welcome to another episode of Inside the Firm. I am your one of your co-hosts, Alex. Uh, uh, what did it? Rough Alex, Framer. Uh. Alex Rough Framer Gore. I'm here with Lance Draftsman Psycho. We've both been doing those tasks. Uh, I've been out in the field for about three days this week. It's been awesome. It's been fun. I only almost hurt myself severely once, so that's an accomplishment, right? Didn't you fall off of a ladder uh, on the barn? Yeah. Yeah. Same thing there. Smacked my face against the lift. Caught myself with my bad shoulder, but it all worked out in the end. Landed on my feet. No big deal. Uh, if you want to be as cool as that, one of the first steps is to uh, learn how to be a manager, a construction manager, uh, especially for residential houses. You can. Uh, Lance and I put together a course called Architects uh, Architect Two Builder. It's at Architects Guide Two, and it's spelled T O dot com. Architects Guide Two dot com. So. You don't actually have to go out in the field all the time. I just went to help out, um, get a feel for the for the crew, and then also get us a little bit of on, on schedule ahead of schedule. But uh, learning how to manage your projects and build them, uh, and basically be a contractor is a huge asset to your firm, your livelihood, everything. You can go check that out at architectsguide2.com. This episode is also brought to you by Pella Luxury. You have never experienced a brand like this before. The collection of brands within the luxury division of Pella are the conversation starters, the pioneers of the industry who provide window and door solutions to discerning architects, the building industry, and beyond. They have decades of experience creating things no one else in the world is creating, and the collection of brands are brought together to complement and build on one another. They don't push beyond the limits. They set them. Explore PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm today. If you go to that link, you are supporting us. That's the easiest way to support us. So check out PellaLuxury.com forward slash the firm today to help us out by helping them out. Uh, this episode is also brought to you by ArcCat. With project conditions changing and limited time to get things done, it's time to have good information at your fingertips. ArcCat.com provides architects, engineers, spec writers, and contractors with the most comprehensive libraries of building, product, content, and designed so you can access it quickly and efficiently. Even better, ArcCat.com is free to use and requires no registration. So visit today and access the information that you need now. That's ArcCat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Start building better content today. Back to you, Al Gore. Awesome. I think one of the hardest things about growing a business is growing your staff. Mm-hmm. I think it's difficult. Um, I think we struggled in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the biggest lessons we learned back in the day is that you always have to keep that new person busy on meaningful work and maybe yourself. Billable a, work. The word billable. Yes. Yep. Yourself, let's say you're a sole proprietor, you have to then take up the slack, meaning 
you might not be doing billable work. You might be doing managing, marketing, um, getting work, uh, working on your system, working on your template, whole bunch of other things that you can do. But make sure that you are, they always have billable work from the moment they come in to the moment they leave and make sure that you basically have two to three projects. We've talked about this, two to three projects so that once it goes to the city for review, they have something else to do. Once it goes to the client to review, they have something else to do. Maybe you have to coordinate with structural or something else so that they can balance that. But now let's kind of talk about the next level. And the next level is what if your staff is growing staff, right? And how to bring that staff up to speed as soon as possible. And the, the, the biggest tip that I can have is a lot of times, when people come in, they're thrown into red lines. They're thrown into horsepower work. And that's what you need them. There's someone leading and they just have too much on their plate and they just need someone to do elevations or floor plans or just 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 tasks like that. So I don't think you're ever going to get away from that. Um, and I think it's necessary to, to help out the people that are managing those products, those projects. But one of the biggest things is that I think they can grow faster when they take a project from beginning all the way to end. Mm -hmm. Even if it is a large project where let's say it's a multifamily 50 units, they don't have the capabilities to do it themselves. But maybe that project, they start with that project manager and even from the floor plans, like, okay, that person is sketching out floor plans and then the other person is executing them. Then they go into elevations. Like they do the whole project beginning to end because I think it cements everything into place into what a project needs and takes to get done who you need to coordinate with what you need to think about where you need to know to get codes because if you only do red lines help out horsepower it's it's all not connected to any sort of structure to any sort of tree um so what we like to do because we have them more is like okay it might be a house mm -hmm. a house is a good place to start or in addition, I don't know if you get the full ramifications, but you could of what the zoning rules and stuff like that is. But our suggestion today is start them from a project from scratch. If you could do at least one of the three projects that they have and the other two are horsepower, I don't think you're going to get away from that. But the learning curve, I think, just skyrockets when you do that. Uh, flattens. There you go. There you go. Yep. That's how you flatten the curve, everybody. Just so you know. Flatten the curve. Yeah. Awesome. So it's it, Lance, you have an article from New <laughs> yes. York Times. I had to put my uh had to put my computer here on uh airplane mode in order to even pull it up because the New York Times wants a dollar for me and I'm not giving those guys a dollar. Uh. It's not happening on my watch, that's for sure. Uh yeah, so this I actually found this uh article on um, LinkedIn, or I don't know where, uh, it was in the Ontario Architect community before Christmas, but it is still 100% valid, and I think I wanted to just see what your reaction was. I don't even think you saw this, Al Gore. So if you're on the YouTube, um, you're watching this, you're seeing it on my screen here, um, which is awesome. New York Times, architects are the latest white-collar workers to confront bosses. Bosses like Al Gore, look yeah. at that guy, he's, he's, he's intimidating, I'm intimidated. Say, saying that they uh, saying they are overworked and underpaid architects at a prominent New York firm. Al once worked at a prominent New York yep. firm. Architects at a prominent New York firm oh, want I'm, to unionize. Yep. Others could follow. Um, they're all raising their left hand, looks like. Uh, so 
whatever it's that foreboding. is. Communist. Uh, for decades, uh, architects have enjoyed a place along doctors and lawyers among the professionals most revered, revered by pop culture and future in-laws. That's hilarious. My future in-laws didn't care if I was an architect at all. Mm. And for good reason... Uh, architects spend years in school learning their craft, pass, pass grueling licensing exams, and put in long days at the office. Still, there is one key difference between architecture and these other vocations, the pay. Even at prominent firms in large cities, few architects make more than $200,000 a year, according to the American Institute of Architects, which advocates for the profession. Most can barely earn six figures, if that, a decade or more into their careers. Which is true, because if you go to the, I think the AIA... Uh, salary survey tool or whatever. You just type in AIA salary. We actually use it. I mean, we had an interview or a review with an employee yesterday and I think it's a pretty good metric. Um, and I think it's pretty accurate to because they're literally surveying people. We're not in the AIA, but they're surveying architects um, and, and what they're paying people, right? So uh, on Tuesday, employees at the well, <laughs> at the well-regarded firm Shop Architects, you know yep. people that work there, said that they were seeking to change the formula of long hours for middling pay by taking a step that is nearly unheard of in their field. They are seeking to unionize. The organizers at SHOP, which has about 135 employees and is known for its work on the Barclays Center in Brooklyn and a luxury building south of Central Park, previously called their Steinway, the Steinway Tower, among other projects, said well over half their eligible colleagues had signed cards pledging support for the union they plan to affiliate with the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers and are asking for a voluntary recognition of what would appear to be the only union at a prominent private sector firm in the country. Quote, many of us feel pushed to the limits of our productivity and mental health. End quote. The firm's union backers, I know you want to jump in and I'm going to let you. <laughs> the firm's union backers who call themselves Architectural Workers United wrote in a letter to the firm's leadership Monday, Quote, shop is the firm that can begin to enact changes that will eventually more ensure a more healthy and equitable future. God, I hate that word, equitable. Um, yeah, end quote. And here's, just before Al jumps in here and asks me a question, I'll tell you why I hate that word, equ equitable. And uh, it's one of my favorite uh, modern-day philosophers. Um, just the other day, actually quoted, uh, tweeted out something that I thought was perfect. Um to think about when you when when you hear this this buzzword equity equity, Dr. Jordan B. Uh, Dr. Jordan B. Peterson, quote, uh, this was like two days ago. How in the world is diversity commensurate with equity? The uh, they oppose uh, one another by definition. We're all different, importantly, but all outcomes should be the same. Else discrimination? Uh, question mark. So those two are just they always seem like they're competing to me. Al Gore, I have a question for you. Yes. Before you jump in here. Uh, you worked in New York. Um, you know people that worked at shop. Uh, what is the deal with, for instance, then the next sentence here is, half a dozen shop employees said they worked about 50 hours a week on average and often 60 to 70 hours when a key deadline loomed every, usually every month or two. What in the F is with these New York firms what is with these firms doing this to workers? Because we don't do that here. And we do award-winning architecture. Like, what? what is the problem? Yeah. What is going on? And I don't remember, too. So I'll tell it specifically because I have a story about that. But um, yeah, um, some of our California friends that, I mean, went from North Dakota State to California. You know who I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. did, did he have this work? Mm -hmm. Was it? It was like this, too, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, 
So the the quick story is, you guys don't have watches on the East Coast or West Coast. <laughs> they don't. <laughs> yeah, um, so uh, basically, I, I worked at the studio Daniel Liebskin, and we had a bunch of friends from SOM, from Shop, from all. I mean, every firm is there, and then architects are nerds, so they just hang out with each other, right? Yeah. And they know each other from school, from Columbia, yeah. stuff like that, right? So, anyways, one of our friends from Shop came up to the office. I think this was around Christmas or whatever, because we we're all going to meet and go out. And just looked at our studio. And our studio was open desk. People were talking, hanging out. It actually reminded me. I just came from the job site. I walked upstairs. It was like buzzing upstairs with people talking to each other. Uh, this is the most uh, activity we've seen in the office in two weeks. Yep. Yep. So, And they were... That person that came from shop was blown away. By Sorry. They were blown away at Liebskin's office? Yeah, at oh, Liebskin's okay. office. Because everybody, was, everybody yep. was hanging out, doing being sociable. Sociable, whatever. It was probably eight at night. Leavesing, we didn't really get off until eight at night, but we didn't start until like 10 mm-hmm. in the morning or something like that. And, and we just asked like, what's it like at shop? And this is just one story. This is only one story. So they said, well, our desks are, they're designed and they're, they look good. They're made out of wood, but they're basically cubicles and no one really talks to each other and it's dead after whatever o'clock, like it's dead. So like, okay, maybe they were like Leibs can work long hours too, but they're not unionizing yet. Right. Um, so first I think it comes down to culture. I think it comes down to culture, like that social interaction, doing something cool with friends that you like and having a positive attitude is what kind of gives you meaning. So like if you have the separated, um, kind of contentious thing there was another firm where people were very contentious in their designs and uh yeah overly competitive Over- um, for e- for themselves in a cutthroat way rather than rather than competitive as a and i hate to use this word collective because it's like you know i'm uh, i'm a individualist uh but there is a certain point where like I mean, we couldn't have a firm if we didn't have a small little society with culture here right yep uh so <clears throat> collaborative <laughs> collaborative right. yeah yep yep so i think one we we made this a rule it's basically 40 hours a week. Um, some people, there might be a deadline or they might be going on vacation. I think they would hit max maybe 50 hours a week, um, which a lot of people coming from school like isn't that bad. And sometimes that happens. But like that's kind of the max. It's not 60 or 70. And you know who usually steps up to the plate more? I guarantee, Actually, here's who steps up to the plate and goes uh, above and beyond and works the longest hours and the hardest at the firm first and foremost. And it will always be like this. These two guys. Well, the owner, yeah, the owners, like it's on you owner. You don't, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't capitulate and start putting that on your employees. That that's not their burden. Like your poor planning or you biting off too much for them to chew is, is that their, your problem is not their problem. Like that's your problem. Yep. So then, What's exactly, that's actually the next point is that they say, Hey, they want more money and less time or less time in the same amount of money or something like that, which, which I actually kind of want to go into well, like some discussion. We, I want to go into further. We got to go up further in the arc. You'll see what they want. Keep going. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Can you pick it up? Like it's a long article if we're going to read the whole thing though. Well, uh, you continue talking yep. and I will find through it. Yeah. So I don't think though, Lance, that the, the firm owners... You hear sometimes like Kroger's on a strike and their CEO makes 20 or 30 million. Even though once you divide all that between all the employees, it's like two cents an hour. Um, 
I bet you shop architects like their farm owner might only be making 300 to 700,000, which also seems like a lot, but a doctor just doing doctor stuff, not in charge of 135 people will be making 350,000. So it's not like you could, it's, I don't think that the owners are taking advantage and like I'm making $10 million and I'm paying everyone else $50,000 and I only have a hundred employees. So like if you did split up my salary, it actually could go to race it. I think that the farm owners are making a, a decent amount for managing 135 people. I don't think that they're making this absorbent amount of money taking it from the employees. So there's a problem here in, in, in my head. One, and it, it's two things. The, it's, too many architects are willing to do design for low, for low fees and it might be because the market is getting flooded. Can I pause you there? Yep. From the article. Firms that specialize in customized designs like Shop regularly spend weeks generating proposals for the competitions through which clients and award contracts and for which the firms receive little to no pay. And many firms propose fees that are too low to support adequate staffing, several experts in the field said. So, that's one fact. So then do we go back to the colleges and do because I mean, the college asks prominent or non-prominent uh, alumni what their opinion are. Like, stop sending out as many architects. Stop sending out as many architects. But then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot because now you're not in a competition. You are now, as a firm owner, in competition, right? So that's not going to happen. The other thing too that mm -hmm. I think a lot of firms mess up on. We did it at Leibskin. I know. I'm sure Shop does it too because I saw some of the stuff that they did. When you don't have this 40-hour work rule rule, you do way too many unnecessary things. You do way too many unnecessary things. <clears throat> in school, you'll make models, you'll make stuff, you'll make diagrams, study diagrams. In Leapskin, we made these intricate, intricate models that literally the client looked at for two seconds and said that was cool. And I'm not even talking about like we would make realistic models where it was what the building was going to be probably actually useful. We would make like conceptual models mm -hmm. of art and design and, and diagrams and all this other stuff. And I bet you, I almost know for sure because I was in that experience and just going through college, 10 to 20% of what you're doing is unnecessary. And I had to realize that too when doing a firm is like, hey, I only have this many hours. What can I cut out? All that stuff is cool. All that stuff is a passion project. Like that art that yep. it, it and and it does help you win awards. It does help you get recognized. So there is a little bit of balance there. But when you have an influx of people coming in and they all want to do that and there's no cap Big on Big influx. Yep. And there's no cap on time. All of a sudden you're going to be working that 60 70 hours for 50k in New York which is just isn't enough. Back from the article, OMA, a rival firm, recently raised heckles on a social media for a job posting that included quote no 9 to 5 mentality end quote. A former junior architect at the firm said in an interview that he had often left the office at 10 or 11 p.m. and sometimes after 3 a.m. A spokeswoman that OMA strove to ensure a healthy workforce is balanced but there's always room to improve. The job ad was intended to appeal to applicants with creativity and passion as you just said. Uh, she said, adding that the company removed the phrase when we saw that it was being interpreted as code for requirement 
to work endless hours. Well, if you never put a cap on it, what do you, what do you, I mean, come on. How brain dead do you think the public is, lady from OMA? So, so their firm said, we want someone that doesn't have a nine to five mentality. Yeah. Uh, literally, quote, no nine to five mentality. Yeah. Yeah. I, I uh, so honestly, uh, to, to be completely transparent, sometimes, sometimes 40 hours per week is, is not enough. It's weak sauce. Um, but this 60, 70, I think you are consistently like if you're consistently doing that, I think it honestly, like, I think you need more sleep. I think, I think there is so many times when I go to bed with a problem and I wake up the next day and solve it. it's solved. Yep. And, and I could have been up turning wheels, making diagrams, doing all this other stuff. And it would have been, would have been useless. And I th- so to put it back on to, um, to put it back on actually, yeah, to put it back on the, the, the principles again, the people running the firms, if you are one of those people listening to, to this show, the other thing I think you need to do is you need to recognize as a principal, when you come up with a concept an initial concept for a project and or maybe you are even doing the initial concepting yourself about uh, knowing when knowing which one is the one making the executive decision and not not even spinning your own wheels it all starts with you so i was guilty of not knowing that myself this past week with this custom house that i've been designing i went through two more iterations and i knew i i knew i should have just stopped at the one and then i I should have stopped at the one. I should have lost the sleep. But I, I, to be fair to me, like I haven't actually sat down and drafted in Revit for, gosh, since I think before we even built the, the um, in this kind of capacity specifically, like a house from scratch before, since before we uh, designed and or did the development. So <clears throat> anyway, that, that all starts with you because then, 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 then you can direct staff from there on out. Like it should just be deliverable, deliverable, deliverable. Um, back to the article here. One other thing they say is like, while long hours are common, firms that produce relatively standard building plans sometimes have more humane policies, right? Because they have like limited, they have, they have put a cap on the thing. They've put some kind of framework around the thing. Many architects said, but sophisticated design firms often regard themselves as artistic enterprises as much as conventional businesses and can have fewer Safeguards. So for graduates listening, you should also be aware of this. Like, it's really up to you on on what you want to do with your life. And sure, you can get with your buddies and and try to unionize and everything like that. But I think you're trying to fit a a square peg in a round hole. Like, you're you're up again. And go for it. If you want to climb that mountain every day and unionize and try to do all these things, what you might end up doing is you might... You might end up destroying the one thing that was special about those kind of firms who do who treat their employees like this. Like I'm, I'm agreeing that they shouldn't be that they need to be better at time management and, and better at fee management and, and all of those things. I, I think I, I think we do a really good, healthy balance between that. And, and it's the truth, because like right right to the left of Al, there's the cover of Builder magazine. Like, I don't know what else to say, um, but so, but you're walking into those environments. So, like, you need to be careful. So, like, for. Al, when Al went to New York, Al didn't have any kids. Al had nothing better to do than no do life. that stuff. He had no nothing life. better to do than that stuff, and that's what he wanted to do. But he didn't go and unionize about it. 
Lance had had to find a balance. So I went to Studio HT to try to find that balance um, before everything imploded. And then we all, all, got, all got laid off. But it's up to you. It's like you. there are those firms out there. They're, well, they're HT the ones- was, I mean, Architects of the Year. It was a, it was a great firm. It, I mean, you weren't doing the Guggenheim, yeah. but you're doing good stuff. I, I, I think the problem is that these firms, you said, well, what's up with the East and West Coast? That's what you said. Do they not have clocks? A lot of these firms that are this big, um, they're doing passion projects. And if you remember what Frank Lloyd Wright once said, he goes, uh, some client was asking him, like, you know, how much is this fee going to cost? How, how much time is it going to take? And he goes, to get the right concept, it might take me one day. It might take me six months. And that is so, so true. Frank Gary, a Guggenheim house. A Guggenheim building might come in one week of thinking or it might come in six months of thinking, right? Yeah. And anytime you have a passion project that you are passionate about, you will automatically put in a lot of time to do it. And these firms that are going after that are attracting those people. I think maybe a clear solution and maybe the union should recognize this too is that there maybe should be levels and you should realize where you're at in the levels and how this works. And here are the three levels. <clears throat> you're in a passion firm, not in a cookie cutter firm. Okay. The first is to make that work. You do need to throw manpower and ideas and creativity and explore these ideas and make, make these models that don't make no sense, but uh -huh. you know, whatever. So you have your junior staff, you have a pot and it is a heavy amount of junior staff and maybe Maybe the union can do this. Maybe you could do it without a union. Hey, if you come in, you're in the junior staff level, and this is zero years of experience, up to seven, but probably five at the, you know, five. But, you know, we can understand that. Um, pay is around this. It's going to be a lot of hours. Um, it's going to be, like, literally no limit on time, and it's just going to be a drudge, right? And But it's going to be a passion project. And me, I would have took that, and I did take that, like, I don't care. I have nothing. i rather just do my passion and live in my shitty apartment than do something else, okay. right? And live in New York City. Then <clears throat> there's going to have to be managers and, and, and people that actually know how a building gets put together, right? I think that not everyone can be that. And you need to tell people that. Is and like, you, need after to these you need to recognize yourself and really have a gut check. Do you want to be what Alex just what just said? It's not just about it's not it's actually more than just knowing about how buildings go together because I would even argue that the the first set of folks that he mentioned in in this little setup is uh, they also know how good buildings go together. Managing people is is a skill well, set. It is it is a very special skill set. We just talked about it. We just talked about it. So all of a sudden you go from a bunch of people that are making I'm making up a number. This is not a real number, but 50k to now a small group of managers after five to seven years, you're now a manager, you know how to put it together, but you just went from 50 people to now there's only seven people. And if you exceed, if you're in seven, eight years, but you're still in that lower amount and you didn't make it into manager, you might have to leave. If now you're having kids as a male or female, it doesn't matter. You're both putting in an effort. This might not, that 50 K level, might not be enough for you with all the work that you're doing. And guess what? You didn't make, you are not in the firm that fits aligns with the concept of where you're yeah. at. 
Now those five to seven people that are managers or whatever, oh, now you're making 100, 125. And then you have your principals that are making 200, I, something like Making that. It up. I know what you mean. Yeah, there's yeah, two yeah. or three of them, yeah. whatever. I think, I think you, where you're working right now might not be in line. You might, you are in the wrong place yeah. or the wrong year. Yeah. You're, you're seven years in and you're doing the work of uh, a third year, a third year person that doesn't have all these life responsibilities. And honestly, good for you. You're, you're, you're grown up. You want to take vacations. You want to live life with your That's a, a exactly. Spouse. There is literally nothing wrong with that in, in that sense either. I bet you take a lot less uh, weight home. Right. But how, how are you... When go, you get to go home. They'd be like, well, the unfair thing is like I can't compete with the, the third-year person out of college that wants to do all this stuff. Yeah, so either you're a manager... Either you become a manager or you go to you, you go to another firm that, that fits that lifestyle. Or I'll give you one more. Okay. Feel free to start your own firm. Try yeah. it. Yeah. That's it, it, seriously. The, the, if, if you've been a longtime listener to this show, you know that a lot of what we, a lot of, of how, a lot of the ways that Alex and I have built this firm from scratch came as a direct result of the of the things that we didn't like at the firms that we were at before, and so that's the free. That's it's still a f- mostly free country, so feel free to start your own firm and build your own firm in the ways that you feel like you can achieve as many of those things that you want possible. Yep, and and why I, why I kind of back Lance up in that is because. <clears throat> You might, through your rules and your organization, be creating a double bind that you don't know. Hey, we want all this. We want to raise. We want less time off. We want all this. And we also want to be the most creative, Bingo. most sought after, most innovative firm that ever exists. <laughs> Jesus. Those two things might not work. Yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they might, to use, to again, go back to Jordan Peterson here, uh, they might not be commensurate with each other. There you go. There's a word. There's a bigger word. Okay, that's what I got. Actually, yeah, he uh, has more. Ah, are we going to on, to, on to the next one now? What do on you got? What one. do you got up next year? We've been talking about housing, and housing is a huge problem. It's not left the, the, the shortage of it. The shortage of it. Yeah. The shortage of it. There's an article, and I'm gonna read through some highlights. But the article is called "The Housing Theory of Everything" by Sam Bowman, and Lance and I have basically stated that we think the solution to housing is in less dense areas, right? But Lance and I know from, was it just last podcast that sometimes we're not always right and we're we're open to grow, right? So this person is taking the position of density and I kind of want to run through at least that side because if you don't understand the different side, you aren't giving full consideration to what the possible solutions are, right? So... I have some highlights here. He basically says, like, this is just context. The average New York City metro area house prices are up over 700% from 1980. That's 300, almost 400% more than the consumer price index. San Francisco, 900%. London, 2,000%. Australia, 1,400%, right? Holy cow. So they are far outstripping inflation, okay? 
Um, by contrast, every other household project has become better or less expensive than Pro- product. You mean product? Yeah. Sorry. Televisions. So they measure this in how many hours it takes to buy a television. Yeah. 1975, it took 60 hours of work. Now in 2013, it took seven hours of work. Okay. Um, freezers. It took in 1975, 65 hours in 2013, 20 hours, a treadmill. In 1975 was 18 hours of work. Now it's six hours of work. So like, holy cow, some things are going down. Housing is going up. Um, But now he dives into productivity. Okay, listen to this stat. Productivity per worker tends to rise about 2% or more with each doubling of a city size, right? The link between size and productivity is only apparent when cities have uh, skilled, educated workers. So if you have a city full of low-skilled, not educated workers, mm-hmm. that 2% isn't going to increase. The reason why the productivity rises is because there's more people in your field, more people you can talk to, more people you can meet, more companies that you can move from so that you can best fit your skills with what's going on, right? Um, this means many people are working in... Uh, Okay, if you can't move to those cities, you're working in a less productive places, right? One of the main issues he said uh, is that regulations that ban buildings are a huge issue. The total cost of regulation-induced sprawl in the United States, according to one study, and he links to it, um, if, if New York, San Jose, San Francisco loosen their rules against building denser housing, the national average of restrictiveness, uh, millions would move their jobs to the best use of their skill and total GDP would rise 8.9%. This would translate into an average American wages of being 8,700 higher per year. Others go further and gain from a whole household increase would be about 25% or around 16,000 per year. Actually, it he had two studies. One is 8,000, one is 16,000. Okay. So a huge increase. If there was affordable housing uh-huh. in all these cities, people could move basically where they want, where their skills are needed, and GDPs would, would rise almost 9%, right? Yep. That's a lot of money to leave on the sidewalk, he says. Nearly, then he's making his case here. Nearly all innovation happens or has happened in cities. Just for example, 10 cities in 2007 produced 70% of the total patents related to computer science. Also, um, and 79% of those total patents around semiconductors with less than 10% of the population. So a lot of innovation is coming from 10% of the population. Mm-hmm. Right? <clears throat> so... Um, do, 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 do. He said there are some problems uh, with what's happening. Like, let's say the, the government makes a new park. Basically, the landowners around there capture that value because their land prices become higher, mm-hmm. right? So he wants increased density, right? And one of the re- points of, of why cities are so much more productive is because people can connect to those different, like if you work in a city that only has a population of $50,000, you have one factory to work at, 
or you work at the school and it's one school board and that's it. If you can move around, those places have to compete for yeah, you, yeah. you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, he, he, he also su- suggests that basically density solves a whole multitude of issues. I don't agree with all of these. Um, but he says walkable cities help fight, fight obesity because you're walking more helps fight climate change because you aren't using the car more. Then he argues for passive houses. Even though the, even though the carbon footprint of these dense, uh, developments is higher than a single family home. Just saying. Yes. Um, he also argues for passive houses because then there's less cost, uh, you know, producing that energy to heat the home. The only problem is like, okay, you're getting into a double bind. Like you can't argue for passive house and affordable housing that they are more expensive. Like you, you can't do it. Yeah. And if you say the energy savings, um, will, uh, change in the future and you'll save more money, the cost of housing. And then remember that you're paying an interest on that. So, like, so you are literally paying more in the beginning. Like it doesn't help solve the problem as much as you think it does. I would just like to see both ideas be allowed to compete. Uh, so this dense idea versus this l- low dense idea allowed to compete. Let, let, let the winner win out just by what happens with the market. Um, and I also think it's counterintuitive to like, you're literally seeing uh, the the trending of people moving out of dense areas into low and less dense areas due to COVID. I don't. I think people. Uh, we have. How are you going to undo that trend? People want their space. Um, so they, if if you give them a choice, most people are going to pick a a house on a quarter acre versus a uh, a two bedroom, one bedroom flat in the middle of New York City. 30 stories up. I yep. guarantee it. So so all of a sudden you have all of these this huge amount of population moving out of these dense cities into the countrysides, so to speak. And then what are you going to do? You're going you pretend like they're going to go, "Oh yeah, I'm I'm going to go back to New York now." No. Yep. Let me read two paragraphs and then let, let's talk about it. <clears throat> so we have suggested one possibility. Radical localized democracy that allows individual streets to opt into greater density by voting for. No construction would happen anywhere that the majority did not opt for it, but streets that voted for more density would become extremely valuable. So there would be a big incentive for homeowners in high demand areas to vote for greater density. But whether this approach or another approach is the best solution is not the key question. What matters is that the housing shortage may be the biggest problem facing our area and solving it needs to become a high priority. Some kind of creative below the radar solution that turns this zero sum game into a positive someone is likely to have a better chance. So he does give one solution. Mm-hmm. And then states like, hey, this might not be the best approach. I realize that there's there's other approaches. One thing that's hard about this is that if you take a neighborhood here in whatever city you're at and you say, hey, we're going to increase the density. The problem is that you have to you might have to redo infrastructure and it costs way more to rip up a sewer pipe and replace it or redo like the roads might not have capacities. The sewer line might not have capacity. The 
infrastructure of where that sewer line might not have capacity. If you took Longmont and tried to make it into a, even Paris density, mm-hmm. you would have all those infrastructures would have to up. You'd have to redo power lines, right? Yeah. So literally, like you have to take something out and then you have to add something back in where there's already a mess of different things. <laughs> so so that's why Lance and I said it could be more expensive. There's there's other solutions too. I think talking about it and realizing both sides might help gain and, and make some other solution that we don't know. Yeah. And and honestly, so he, he you know, let's think think about his little argument he just made too about not not now, but this this author about the idea that so you have this radicalized democracy and let's say neighborhood neighborhood uh, neighborhood A versus neighborhood B. Neighborhood A voted, yeah, we want to allow more dense housing and the neighborhood B's like, nope, we're not doing that. Fine. Let them do that and, and let's see who, who let's see whose property values actually go up. Go for it. Yeah, I'm all about this experiment. Yeah, I just I think there's a fair argument that neighborhood B would go up further than neighborhood A. Cuz what if neighborhood A gets crazy dense and then people driving along they drive through neighborhood A first and they go and then and they're just like, "Wow, that's pretty dense." And then they go to neighborhood B and they're like they literally go and they breathe they 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 breathe a sigh of air because they go, "Oh, less dense." Right? But hey, I actually agree with that. So that unit in B might be worth more than the individual A. But that landowner of A might say, hey, I put eight on there and all of them are less. And it's also lowering the price of housing, which is what the argument is, is housing is too high and it's gumming up our system and not letting people to move or things like that. Or you can't even get one because it's so high. But through my land, through having my land, the percentage that I got from selling all of those actually made me more money and it lowered land prices too. So I think both can be true. I think both can be true. What I'm saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. what I'm saying though is like it might not work out because of all the infrastructure, all that other stuff, right? Um, also too, like if you think about what's the main benefit of density is this connection. There's two uh, transportation, there's actually multiple transportation solutions. One is trains. I don't think it works because our cities aren't walkable, right? Uh, and what are those light rails, right? Uh, one is drones. <clears throat> drones are helicopters. Only the big blade is made into tiny small blades. I don't think that that's going to work because helicopters are loud and they actually are cr- quite dangerous. Um, but that's another thing people are, are doing so that even if you had people far out or let's say you had a dense area but the traffic, the infrastructure isn't supporting it but you had drones, maybe that could work. Um, the other one is Elon Musk and tunnels. I think he's even though fun. he had a big traffic jam in Vegas, you see that he's going to solve that problem though. Well, I believe in you, Elon. <laughs> Actually, but it's the same thing too. It's like it's just roads with a different level. You just have to build more, and it, it does cost more because now it's underground. But if there's no land above, um, so it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. The, the uh, one one of my solutions, but people could find fault in this, is that if you do build out in these areas where it's low density, where you don't have those problems of trying to build infrastructure on top of infrastructure, you could have some medium density, some light density, and then somehow you do maybe have a tunnel that connects to the city because there's no more land to make the highways bigger. And that always costs so much money because you have to buy everyone else out and there's buildings on there and stuff like that. So you still, you live what would traditionally be an hour and a half away from the city center, but with the tunnels or drones, I just don't believe in drones. I might not even believe in tunnels. You're 20 minutes away. Mm -hmm. Well, then you're getting the benefit with the lower costs, with the lower freedom because multiple people can do it. Um, Tough problem, but 
it's a problem we're all involved in. Yeah. yeah. Ad- advocate for the utmost diversity for the solutions. That's it. Let let the market sort it out. But don't just think it's a one-sided and that's that's all it is. Yep. Um, and I don't think he was saying that because one street could say this, another street could say this. That's exactly what I'm saying. I would yeah. love to see it play out. I w- and, and, then, and then maybe we can, like, the problem is, is like, you know, it's never going to be a truly free market. Um, I wish it was a marketplace of ideas so that it could play out because then we could have an objective truth at the end of the day. I just don't know if we'll ever get there. Yep. Uh, two things I wanted to talk about, if you're done with that little sure. thing there, Al, is uh, number one, it's okay to scare clients out of projects. What do I mean by that? <clears throat> Telling the truth about what it's going to cost. Um, especially if you've taken the architect to builder course and you are building projects and you're building an empirical set of data like we do at the firm, consistently updating our spreadsheets, knowing what uh, materials costs. And then therefore, when you go to meet with a potential client, like I did uh, last week, um, for just a, uh, a sup- fairly substantial addition on their house, you know, they said they have uh, everybody's got their number in their head, right? And it's still somehow 100k. I think I can get this done for 100k, and I go, yeah, I think that's a good starting point. Um, I'll put together a design proposal for you, and then what I'm also going to do is I'm gonna I'm gonna show you guys. I'm gonna set up, uh, give you guys a set of plans <clears throat> uh, that I we did for another client, and here's a their construction budget, um, and you'll see. What you what a hundred thousand get you, and the other budget that I sent them by the way was it was like a six hundred square foot, um, basically two or three bedroom like addition off the back of her house, hundred forty k, and they wrote back to me and said I think you successfully. They were very polite and they were actually really thankful. They were like, uh, I think you successfully scared us out of this project for now. Mm. And I and they go and they they were not rude about it at all. They were go but thank you because now we can plan for like what we think it's going to take to actually get it done. We want to get it done. We'll be back in touch. And I'm confident that these people will because what you have done for folks is, first of all, you've, you've saved them. You've saved them and yourself all sorts of time and anguish and angst, right? There's Because no matter how much you warn them about their initial budget, and maybe that it's too small, if they end up going, and they don't believe you, and they end up going through with their project, at some point there's going to be a point of contention and angst and it, might get point put back to you, especially if you never got them to put it in writing. Like you never said, look, I think your, I think your project's going to cost, you know, X amount of dollars. And then if you just verbally say it, right. Um, but the other thing it does is it sets them up to be able to have a goal to attain. So do not be afraid to just tell the absolute truth about budgets and scare people out of clients. Even if it means you losing some work remember the way they left off with the email from with me was we will be back in touch. So that future work is probably going to come back. Right. But also too, like you're telling the truth. Yeah. You're doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, other thing is um, we did end up getting a client who was a uh, victim of the Marshall wildfire in Boulder, Colorado or Boulder County, Colorado. So, we, I, I signed one. The other guy, I think, just went cold, uh, which is fine. And um, so I'm really happy to be helping out one, one of the families. But I got to say, some of, them is, is some of the rhetoric on social media that I've seen is, if you are in a community and you have one of these fires rage through, please do not advocate for your social justice cause over their cause of they just want their damn house back. These people are not interested. Maybe they are interested in the things you're interested in later. Example, 
We need to make some some people I've seen screeching online about this. We need to make it. We need to be advocating for the city of Louisville. Just one example. Superior, whatever. To make sure that these homeowners build net zero homes, that they build um, 100%, absolutely 100% sustainable homes, that they only put on materials in the exterior of their building that are like 100% fireproof. Well, that's very difficult to achieve. I mean, they'd have to be all metal in theory. And then these people don't even know the details. I'm not even going to get into the minutia of what all you architects and building professionals, maybe even other folks who are just listening, who are cursory level... Um, adjacent level uh, professionals know what it takes to fireproof a building, right? What the burn victims actually want is their freaking house back. Have some empathy. Squash your, your, your stupid social justice nonsense for now. They want their life back. Yeah. They want their life back. Can you imagine how devastating it would be to lose your house? Think about it. Well, also too, it's like, uh, everything in that house is gone. And then you got to deal with, Trying to find somewhere to live for you and your family with already there's a housing shortage, dealing with insurance. Then you got to deal with, in this case, FEMA, and and who's who's actually going to clean up your lot? Is it going to be you're going to wait on the feds who take forever to do something, or are you going to hire a private company? Then you got to find an architect. Like, come on, it it is not, it is not possible for uh, you to solve everyone else's problem. Mind your business. You know what I mean? Like you cannot, you one, you can't make everyone happy. And if you do, you literally don't have a, a solution. Um, and it, it's also not possible. It's a, you know, uh, so, okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Where are we at? Nick? Do we have Nick with Nick? Reeds? Uh, somebody better than Elon says he says he's better than Elon here. I believe it's Nick. Nick reads. Hello, best friends. Happy new year. A reading. Life is not easy. It's not. Don't try to make it that way. Life's not fair. It never was. It isn't now and it won't ever be. Don't fall into the trap, the entitlement trap. A feeling like you're a victim. You're not. Get over it. Get on with it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what is success to us? What is success to you? Is it more money? That's fine. I got nothing against money. Maybe it's a healthy family. Maybe it's a happy marriage. Maybe it's to help others be famous, to be more spiritually sound. Leave the world a little bit better place than you found it. Continue to ask yourself that question. Now your answer may change over time, and that's fine. But do yourself this favor. Whatever your answer is, don't choose anything that will jeopardize yourself. Prioritize who you are who you want to be, and don't spend time with anything that antagonizes your character. Be brave. Take the hill. But what is my hill? So first we have to define success for ourselves. And then we have to put it into work to maintain it. Make that daily tally. Tend to our garden. Keep things that are important to us in good shape. Where you are not is as important as where you are. And it's just as important where we are not as where we are. Look, the first step to le that leads to your identity in life is usually not, I know who I am. The first step is usually, I know who I am not. 
process of elimination. Defining ourselves by what we are not is the first step that leads us to knowing who we are. You know that group of friends that you hang out with that really might not bring out the best in you? You know they gossip too much or they kind of sh- or they're kind of shady. They really aren't going to be there for you in a pinch. Or how about that bar that we keep going to that we always seem to have the worst hangover from? Or that computer screen, the computer screen that keeps giving us excuses not to get out of the house and engage with the world and get some real human interaction. Or how about that food that we keep eating, that we keep eating, stuff that tastes so good going down but makes you feel like crap the next week. We feel lethargic. We keep putting on weight. Well, those people, those places, those things, stop giving them your time and energy. Just don't go there. I mean, put them down. And when you do this, when you put them down, you will quit going there. And when you quit giving them your time, you inadvertently find yourself spending more time and in more places that are healthy for you, that bring you more joy. Why? Because you've just eliminated those who's, the where's, and the what's, and the when's. That are keeping you from your identity. Trust me, too many options. I promise you that too many options will make you a tyrant. So get rid of the excuses and the wasted time. Decrease your options. If you do this, you will accidentally, almost innocently, put in front of you what is important. The process of elimination, knowing who who you are, is hard. It's hard. Give yourself a break. Eliminate who you are not first, and you'll find out yourself where you need to be. Instead of creating outcomes that take us, let's create more outcomes that pay us back. Fill us up. Keep the fire lit. Turn you on for the most amount of time in your future. We try our best. We always do our best. Our architecture is a verb. Since we are architects of our lives, let's study the habits, the practices, the routines that we have let lead to the and feed our success, our joy, our honest pain, our laughter, our earned tears. Let's discuss that and give thanks to those things. And when we do that, guess what happens? We get better at them. And we have more time to dissect, be discerning, choose it because you want it. Do it because you want it. We're going to make mistakes. You got to own them. Then you got to make amends. And then you have to move on. Guilt and regret kills many a man before their time. So turn the page. Get off the ride. You are the author of the book of your life. Matthew McConaughey. Toodles. Oh wow! Toodles. What do you? I yeah. I. It'd be a I, lot cooler if you did, bro. I think the only tie-in I have is that you could tie it back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago. Is like not only can you eliminate too much screen time, too much gossiping, too. Maybe that ties in is like you can eliminate things you don't like about yourself. You, well, you I, could quit drinking November first, twenty twenty-one. You could do that. 
You could do that. You could quit shaving. You could quit shaving November twenty first, twenty twenty one. Your face is so weird to me. It's the best. He doesn't. He doesn't shave, but the goatee grows in perfectly. All Wario star style like that. How is that possible? Superior uh, specimen. That's that's what they nature said. Is like, hey, we're gonna make a person they that doesn't to, grow they, side hair. They ought to study this guy. <laughs> I don't believe you. You mean your hair grows in all not white trashy like that? Yes. <laughs> I have I have nothing else to say. I tried to spin it. Here's what I've got. Let's bring down the crew for some A.R.E. Jeopardy. Question numero uno. What type of room is not allowed to have an opening a.k.a. a door, into a garage space? Is it A, kitchen, B, bathroom, C, sleeping room, D, mechanical room? Three, two, one. C, 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 sleeping room. You are all correct. Congratulations. Pat on the back. Pat on the back, everyone. Sleeping room cannot open into a garage. Question two, to be a basement, to be or not to be a basement, that is the question. According to the IBC, the relationship between the lowest floor level and the floor level above must meet the following condition. The floor level above must be A, the floor level above must be less than four feet from the grade plane, right? Must be less than four feet. Uh, B, the floor level above must be less than six feet from the grade plane. C, the floor level above must be less than three feet. Or D, the floor level above must be less than 12 feet from the grade plane. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. All right. Three, two, one, B, C, B, A, B. So B was six feet. A was four feet. IBC answer is six feet. I believe Boulder has modified it and is four feet. Um, so just know that that becomes an issue. Like know that not only look at the IBC or the IRC, but look in what the, the city might change it. Um, Oh, nice. Three, number three, what ki- what kinds of sites typically must be studied and tested for presence of hazardous materials? A, chemical plants, B, power plants, C, gas stations, D, landfills, or E, all of the above? B, E, 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 correct answer is E. That's a layup. Uh, what do we got for scores? Three, two, three. All right, here we go. Number threes, or we could go four, four, four. Number four, what does DWV stand for? Is it A, drawing walls and vanities? Is it B, drawing with vectors? Is it C, drain, waste, and vent? Or is it D, daily wires vindication? They won their ruling. Score this ruling. All right, we got C, 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 
D? Is that your answer? D? So the correct answer is C. <laughs> who Drain, has, who waste, has four? Invent. All right, we got a tiebreaker. Okay, coming in hot for the tiebreaker. <laughs> Fastest person to give the correct answer wins. Everyone else gets a try after the first person goes. This is a really good PPD one. Okay. Re-entrant corners in buildings. So think L-shaped or T-shaped floor plans. Should be avoided wherever this type of natural disaster is more likely to occur. Good job, Tyler. Tyler. Where are we going to eat? Uh, I think they were saying Hefe's. Hefe's? Yeah. Nice. Way better than Runza. Way better. <laughs> Runza, if you're listening, I'll still read an ad for you. No problem. No problem. Or cash that check. Uh, check out architectsguide2.com for the Architect 2 Builders course. Lance? Uh, if you're watching on uh, YouTube, please share this episode with a friend, a colleague. Make sure you hit that like button. Leave us a comment. Subscribe. We'll see you next week. All right. Let's go to Runza. Dude, Dude, Read the entire earthquake. Fema. Fema. I didn't even hear what you said. Daily wire. Yeah. <laughs> of all things you would guess. Sorry. Big fan. Yeah, huge Shapiro fan. You driving? Huh? You driving?